detail. Attend. Hut. Forward. March. Mark time. March. Detail. Halt. Center. Pace. At ease. If the pastor didn't want to play these videos, it'd be a lot easier for Hal. <laughs> we have a communion service once a month to remember our Lord's life and work on the cross. However, the communion service we have on New Year's Eve is different from the standpoint that it's administered by those in military uniform. The question might be asked, why have the service with military uniforms? Why administer the communion in this manner? We're not attempting to make the military service somehow spiritual, although, of course, the military should be accomplished. Those who serve in the military should be serving as unto the Lord. Nor are we trying to turn the Lord's Supper into a military function. But we simply seek to honor both for what each represents. We have in this nation many symbols that may represent our freedom, such as maybe individuals, speeches, buildings, events, possibly locations, the Declaration of Independence could be part of those in the Constitution. However, the military uniform is unique. It's unique from the standpoint that it has generally found its place at times and events in our nation's history that overwhelmingly establish and preserve the national freedom that we have today. Sometimes those uniforms were knickers and tricorner hats. Other times, they were buckskins, moccasins. Other times, it may have been western garb and cowboy hats. Still other times, gabardine and leggings, even flight suits and wetsuits. And, of course, camouflage and flak jackets. So principally and foremost, I believe our freedom may genuinely be associated with our military uniforms. And those are the symbols, we would say, of our freedom, our national freedom. Furthermore, these uniforms represent the sacrifice of those who have worn them down through our history. These sacrifices come in the form of time. Other uh, areas of sacrifice might be the energy, separation, sacrifices of personal wealth, fame, achievement, sacrifices of their family, comfort, safety, and their health. And when I say health, I'm talking about injury and sometimes loss of life. 
The very nature of military service requires personal sacrifice of those who are committed and dedicated to the responsibilities and the, the, the qualifications to wear that uniform. So as we observe these uniforms this evening, or really at, at any other time, whenever we see them, we should be cognizant that they are a very visible symbol of our national freedom. And if we truly know the sacrifices that go with the uniform, we understand that that freedom is not free. We have freedom because of the sacrifice of those dedicated to serve in that uniform. So we have symbols and we have sacrifice. So as we observe the Lord's Supper or the communion service, we have symbols that represent the commitment and the sacrifice of our Lord for our spiritual freedom. The symbols are the bread and the cup. These symbols was, which represent the person and the work of our Lord during his life on earth were established by him. He established these symbols. And they are established so that we would never forget the sacrifice that he has made for our spiritual freedom. We receive our Lord's saving work by grace. And for us, when we say by grace, that means that it's free. But it wasn't free for our Lord. His sacrifice on the cross meant that he paid very dearly. Therefore, this evening, the first part of our New Year's Eve service is to observe the source of our spiritual freedom through the Lord's table or the communion service. The Lord's table is designed to help us commemorate the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's more than commemorating, it's also concentrating. By taking the bread and the cup, we are focused on those symbols. It's designed for us to remember and focus on the biblical truth that is taught through the symbolism of the elements. The unleavened bread pictures Jesus Christ in his humanity. He was fully God, undiminished deity, but he was also true humanity, united in one person forever during his first advent. We call that the incarnation, when he was in the flesh. In his human body and life, he lived without sin. He was qualified to go to the cross and there to die. The payment for the sins uh, and, and there to die as our substitute and to take upon himself the judicial penalty for our sins. The cup symbolizes his blood, which represents Christ's work on the cross. This was his spiritual death, the payment for the sins of the entire world. He died spiritually so that we might have 
spiritual life. And this is his sacrifice for us. So the bread represents our Lord's qualifications in his person to go to the cross. And the cup represents the sacrifice of our Lord while on the cross. And these are the thoughts that we should be thinking during the communion service. Every now and then someone wonders of the qualifications for the communion service. There is really only one, and that is that you be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There is no requirement for church membership. The Lord Jesus Christ requires this of all believers. And so anyone who's here this evening is more than welcome to join us in the communion service. However, it's meaningless unless you truly are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We always begin with a brief period of silent prayer so that each person present may examine their own hearts or souls for confession of sins. And so this is your opportunity to close your eyes and bow your heads and then I will open this in prayer. I'll ask Scott Craig to give a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Dear Father, thank you for this time you've given us to come to your communion table. May we not forget that the God-man came to this earth and was able to not sin his entire time on this earth. Incarnate Christ, by not being able or not sinning, he became impeccable and he became a due substitute for us, the only substitute that could go to the cross and die for our sins and allow us to receive the salvation that he so graciously gave us. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this this communion table. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. Move out.
detail. Forward, march. Mark time, march. Detail, halt. Center, face. In the same night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hal Hagemeyer to give thanks for the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to remember the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice through the symbolism of the cup. We know, Lord, that even though his physical pain on the cross was excruciating, we know it was nothing compared to the spiritual pain that he suffered on our behalf during his spiritual separation from you. So we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to remember that. We ask that you would help us to clearly recall what he did for us as we partake of the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Move out.
detail. Forward, march. Mark time, march. Detail, halt. Center, face. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have this opportunity to remember the work of your Son on the cross. We're thankful that it is a grace provision for us. We're thankful that we could do nothing to receive it except believe. Help us, Father, as we focus on these things that we will truly understand the depth of your love for us and the grace that is provided here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, as we prepare to welcome in the new year, I've chosen uh, a title for our service, and I entitled it A Nation in Crisis. And A Nation in Crisis may seem a little extreme at this point because it seems like the nation is very prosperous, and we are. As a matter of fact, we're greatly blessed by the Lord. But we are truly a nation in decline. And I think that is apparent from observing our, our past history and how we've arrived at where we are today. The program this evening shows a picture of our president, and I think all of you might have a copy of the program uh, there in front of you or near you. It's a picture of our first president, General George Washington, as the commanding general of American forces during the War of Independence. This was, of course, prior to the formation of the nation. We were a mere 13 colonies at that time, but the, the nation was in the embryonic stage and the situation was desperate. The front page of the program pictures General Washington in prayer. I have another portrayal of it on the slide. 
two different pictures, but they provide us a little bit different perspective. The story that accompanies the picture is that General Washington was a devout man who believed in God. He was active in several churches, promoted the concept of religious freedom, encouraged his soldiers to have faith in God, and referred again and again to the divine providence. And he would refer to divine providence in his writings and in his speeches, used very often. At the same time, Washington was a private person who considered his faith a private matter. While he did not discuss theology or make a habit of preaching to others, he always acknowledged what he saw as the role of God in the creation of this new nation. As commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, General Washington established his headquarters at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, in December of 1777, and stayed there until June of 1778. This was a time of great hardship for the Continental Army. Hardship with regard to food, with regard to clothing, with regard to ammunition, which was, of course, in very short supply. Valley Forge was about 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was where the British had made their headquarters. General Washington had selected this location of Valley Forge so that he could be within uh, an easy distance, a short distance of the British force so that he would always know what they were doing to prevent any surprise attack on their part. It was also close to the Continental Congress, which was located in York, Pennsylvania at that time. General Washington does not mention this event, the prayer at Valley Forge, in any of his writings. But then it was not his custom, it was not his custom to record every time he prayed. And of course, that's not something that we normally do either. However, General Washington did write out many prayers, and he used them very often throughout his years in service. However, because we only have one source of this event, some deny its authenticity. The story is confirmed only by the diary of Reverend Nathaniel Randolph Snowden, a Presbyterian minister. But who wouldn't believe a minister? It's got to be true. A brief account of the story is that a resident of Valley Forge, a man named Isaac Potts, a Quaker, meaning he didn't believe in war, and also a Tory, meaning he supported the British. He was employed to grind grain delivered by the surrounding farmers for the Continental Army. He was opposed to the war and believed the colonists had no hope to prevail against the invincible Great Britain. In fact, the condition of the colonial army was desperate 
and many were talking about quitting, simply going home. One evening, while returning to his home, Potts was passing by a wooded area, a wooded area that was near the bivouac, the encampment, and of the uh, colonial army. And as he was passing by these woods, he heard this voice, a plaintive uh, prayer, as he described it. He said it was a prayer, the voice of a man. He decided to, to stop to determine the source of this voice. He dismounted, tied his horse to a sapling that was nearby, and discreetly entered the woods so as not to disturb the person praying. To his astonishment, he saw General Washington on his knees praying. Potts said that the general was praying to the God of the armies. Praying to the God of the armies, beseeching to intervene with all his divine aid, as it was a crisis and the cause of the country, of humanity, and of the world was at stake. Potts said he'd never heard such a prayer, and he left the general alone praying. He returned to his house and told his wife, I saw a sight and heard today what I never saw or heard before. He said up to that point, he didn't think a man could be a soldier and a Christian. But if there was one in the world, it was Washington. He added to that, that at that moment, he realized that the war was the cause of God and that America would prevail based upon this prayer. Whether Washington knelt in prayer at the winter encampment of Valley Forge may be legend or it may be fact, but there are many accounts of people seeing and hearing Washington praying. It was a fact of his life. When he was president, he would pray at various times during the day at his desk. There are stories of his friends and aides entering his office, interrupting an impromptu prayer session, a prayer meeting between the general or the president at that time and God. So it's amazing that we would somehow, historians would somehow, try to discount this story. This prayer at Valley Forge remains a symbol of faith, patriotic duty, and the spiritual heritage of the founding of the United States of America. This is part of our spiritual heritage. We have many examples of America's heritage from our national history. We've seen them in the past. As a matter of fact, I have a, a rolling scroll that I sometimes play between services on Sunday. And that reveals, though that revolving scroll reveals those who founded our nation and it reveals that they were godly and biblically grounded. Our founding fathers, our founders, the framers of our Declaration of Independence and, of course, the Constitution, had no such concerns about public expression of faith as none was warranted. So there was never a concern about expressing their faith. 
Conversely, they were bold about promoting Christianity and speaking about their own faith. They were constantly speaking about their faith. Historian Peter Lilback, author of Sacred Fire, an exhaustive scholarly treatise on George Washington, notes that it is only in recent years, with the searchable digital publication of our founding writings, that we get an accurate picture of their faith and their expression in their writings. Little back writes, and I think I have this for you. Yes, Lowen back writes, Washington referred to himself frequently using the words ardent, fervent, pious, and devote, devout. There are over 100 different prayers composed and written by Washington in his own hand. He described himself as one of the deepest men of faith of his day when he confessed to a clergyman. When he confessed to a clergyman. No man has a more perfect reliance on the all-wise and powerful dispensations of the Supreme Being than I have, nor thinks his aid, God's aid, more necessary. Although he never once used the word deist in his voluminous writings, he often mentioned religion, Christianity, and the gospel. He spoke of Christ as the divine author of our blessed religion. Every now and then, George Washington is criticized because there might be an appearance here or there that he doesn't think or he doesn't express the fact that Jesus is God. Well, this one line tells us that he did believe he was God. He said that he was the divine author. The divine author of our blessed religion. He wrote of the blessed religion revealed in the word of God. He encouraged seekers to learn the religion of Jesus Christ. He even said to his soldiers, to the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. And so, here we see what uh, we see the faith of our initial commander-in-chief and also what we see, what we later on see during his uh, his time in office as president. <clears throat> Believe it or not, Washington did not need to consult pollsters or focus groups as general or president before issuing proclamations of faith. He spoke them from his heart, just as most of our founding fathers did. And I've showed some of these before, but I'm going to, one more time, show some of the writings that we have regarding our some of our founding uh, our founders first of all John Adams John Adams says the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity I will vow that I then believed and now believe 
that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and, and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. The Christian religion is above all the religion that ever prevailed or existed in ancient or modern times. The religion of wisdom, virtue, equity, and humanity. I think I have one more quotation here from George Washington. This is actually one of his general orders. It came in May of 1778. This was orders to his to the army. The commander-in-chief directs that divine services be performed every Sunday at 11 o'clock in those brigades to which there are chaplains. Those which have none to attend the place of worship, those who have none to attend the place of worship nearest to them. It is expected that officers of all rank will, by their attendance, set an example to their men. While we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. The signal instances of providential goodness, which we have experienced and which have now almost crowned our labors with complete success, demand from us, in a peculiar manner, the warmest returns of gratitude and piety to the supreme author author of all good. Again, that was George Washington's general order in May 1778. And we have others. John Hancock, that the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be continually increasing until the whole earth shall be filled with his glory. Patrick Henry, being a Christian is a character which I prize far above all this world has or can boast. The Bible is a book worth more than all the other books that were ever printed. This is all the inheritance I can give to my dear family. The religion of Christ can give them one which will make them rich indeed. Benjamin Rush. The only means of establishing and perpetuating our republican forms of government is the the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. And for those of you who may not recognize Benjamin Rush, he played an extremely important part in the founding of our nation. Here is another quote from him with just a few of the things that he accomplished. The Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. The Bible should be read in our schools in preference to all other books because it contains the greatest portion of that kind of knowledge which is calculated to produce private and public happiness. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was the Surgeon General of the Continental Army. He had gone to, he was a graduate of Princeton. Uh, he was a graduate also, I believe, of Cambridge and uh, maybe even one other medical school. He was the father of public schools. He was known as the father of public schools under the Constitution. He was the treasurer of the U.S. Mint under three presidents. 
and he was the founder of the Philadelphia Bible Society. And I could go on with many other quotations. Um, the overwhelming majority of the founders of this nation demonstrated a faith in God and a biblical foundation. However, America has changed. And today we have mounting restrictions on when, where, and even if we can mention the Christian faith. There's a newfound understanding of how our nation was established. Completely dissimilar to what I've just mentioned, what I've just demonstrated. It's, a sta- it's a, the understanding of an intolerance of Christianity, which goes beyond separation, which is, of course, in itself, legal fabrication. But it's an understanding of protection from someone mentioning Jesus or God or Christ, and now a promotion of those things that the Word of God even teaches are wrong. And this is spread, of course, into even our military service, where now, and also governmental service, so that now expressing your personal beliefs in maybe biblical morals can be seen as offensive, and it's now intolerant. It's not tolerated. Today we are acutely aware that something has seriously changed from these days. And that's why I say that our nation is in crisis. The Bible, and I'm just going to list several of these. Now, there's more than several here, but unfortunately, I'm only listing uh, a few. The Bible has been completely removed from the public classroom because it's seen as intolerant of certain beliefs and offensive to some. Prayer is prohibited from school and from any school events, like sporting events, which at one time it was not unusual to have a pastor or a minister give the invocation at the beginning of almost every event. No longer can God be mentioned in schools unless a student asks a question. And then I'm certain the preferred procedure by the Department of Education is to squelch it to stop that conversation. It is appropriate to discuss the Bible, but only to the point out of how wrong it is and ignorant it is regarding creation and science. Children being sent home from schools to change if they have any reference to God on their clothes. That may not happen in every school, but in many schools it does. Crosses almost anywhere in the land must be removed, certainly on public lands, but even on private property if it can be observed and it can be offensive to someone. It's becoming, supposedly becoming offensive to wish someone Merry Christmas. And there's certainly a movement uh, now in the United States to remove the word Christmas from the end of the year celebration here, from our holiday. Also, public officials prohibited from using Merry Christmas on official mailings. 
no longer can our uh, representatives, I think senators may still do this, but representatives can no longer say Merry Christmas in their official mailings. It's against the law. We have public monuments being sanitized of any reference to God. Example would be the World War II monument where we have uh, several sayings, one by General Eisenhower, who was a believer and a strong believer. Uh, One of his quotes is sanitized. Uh, uh, The word God has been removed from that quotation. And also the new Congressional Visitor Center uh, refused, there was the contractors refused to put in God we trust in the building until, of course, uh, it came to the attention of some senators and representatives who forced them to do that. In some cases, military chaplains are discouraged and sometimes prohibited from using the name of Jesus Christ. More and more local governments and businesses are removing any reference to Christ or Christmas, preferring to use season's greetings or holiday greetings, holiday trees. And I understand, I can't back this up from a personal testimony, but I also understand that this year uh, any ornaments on the national tree were to be uh, anything but something that referred to the Christian religion. So, uh, in the past, it was uh, the national tree had many ornaments that referred to to Christ. But this year, uh, I'm told there were none. How has this happened? Well, it's not something that has happened just yesterday or over the past year or so. But the nation has been steadily drifting over the past century from a nation under God to a nation that is rejecting God. America has simply moved away from God and accepted a steady moral decay. And while we'd like to blame others, maybe elected officials, educators, even clergymen, you know, those of us who are members of the cloth, there is sufficient reason to blame for the blame to be laid really at the feet of almost every Christian in America because we have simply not been the type of Christians that we, that we should be. Some say the problem is the churches. The churches are no longer teaching the truth of the Word of God, no longer teaching Bible doctrine. And while that's true, most of the churches are simply teaching something that the people want to hear, preferring not to hear Bible studies, not to hear the truth of the Word of God. Sadly, pastors have drifted with their congregations instead of continuing to teach the truth of the Word of God. Believers simply have become complacent in our spiritual lives and in our public profession and demonstration of our faith. We've become complacent. America is not mentioned in the Bible, but Israel is at least an example of what happens when a nation becomes unfaithful to God. I don't think there can be any serious argument in the light of history if you study history appropriately, properly, correctly. I don't think there can be any serious argument in the light of history that America had a spiritual foundation and was blessed by God because of our spiritual commitment to God. However, like Israel, we have forgotten the source of our blessings. And we're told 
in Psalm 33.12. Psalm 33.12 tells us that our blessings come from God. Psalm 33.12. Psalm 33.12 says our blessings come from the Lord. Psalm 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen as His own inheritance. And that was true of Israel. And Israel understood that. But what happened? Well, Hosea 4.6. Hosea 4.6. Hosea 4, verse 6 says, and I'm going to read the first verse of the chapter and then jump over to verse 6. Hosea 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land against Israel. Verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being, from being priests or being priests for me, because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. Now, as we read that verse, it's quite evident that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What kind of knowledge? It's the knowledge of the law. And that's what he says um, as he go, as he continues. Because you have rejected knowledge. And then it says, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Now, most interpretations of that verse means that there is a rejection of the priest. And I think that that probably can be a proper interpretation. But... The nation of Israel is being indicted here, not just the priests. And in Exodus 19, the Lord says that the nation of Israel is a kingdom of priests. Why? Because Israel was to represent God to the rest of the world. Exodus 19 beginning in verse 5. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 5. And here is a promise and really a responsibility of Israel. A promise to them and a responsibility of them. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. This was, of course, the Lord speaking to Moses. Why were they to be a kingdom of priests? Well, not only to represent themselves before God, but also to represent themselves or represent God to the rest of the world. And Israel 
failed in that regard. And that's why this charge in Hosea is being brought against Israel. Hosea was writing before Israel was destroyed. Israel is yet to be destroyed. So this is being directed towards the northern kingdom and, of course, also to the southern kingdom because they were uh, failing as well. Hosea was trying to warn them, but, of course, Israel doesn't listen. And we must be careful not to directly apply certain passages in the Old Testament that are designed to be specifically uh, applied to Israel. But I think it's very easy for us to see the applications. The applications, the general applications, that can be applied to us and can be applied to our nation. Israel simply failed to be faithful. And I think that America finds her finds herself in this same situation. One of the lessons that we learn from judges is that the society around Israel changed her. The generation that entered the land under Joshua was a very faithful generation. They were very committed to the Lord. But the society around Israel changed her. We must remember that Israel is our example. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. He says that we have these examples in the Old Testament. They're there for our edification and our example. And we must be therefore also, uh, we must also remember therefore that we find ourselves in similar situations that Israel found them, themselves. We must remember that we live in Satan's world. Someone might say, well, they were surrounded by the Canaanites, and we know that the Canaanites were very pagan. Well, that was Satan's world, and this is Satan's world. We live in Satan's world, and we are vulnerable to his attacks, and we are certainly under attack. One of the attacks that comes daily is the way that we think the way that we think. Cosmic thought is so seductive and so elusive that we very often do not realize that we are under attack. We fall to it without knowing. Without knowing it, we accept the thinking of the world, human viewpoint. And by doing so, we reject divine viewpoint. And that's what's so important about Romans 12, 1 and 2, that talks about conforming our thoughts, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our thoughts. And that's found in Romans 12. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your expected service. And do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So the importance of the transformation of our thinking is stressed here by the Apostle Paul. We must not allow the world to transform our thinking because when we do, we are like the frog the frog in the water. The water slowly being uh, increased in temperature. And before we know it, the water is boiling. And we had no idea that it was coming. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must also remember that you are to be conformed to His image. So we are not to conform to the world, but we are to conform to His image. And that's found in Romans as well. Just back up a couple pages. Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 29. And I probably should start in verse 28. Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew in eternity past, knowing who would believe, He also predestined, He designed a plan for them to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, might just be the first of many brethren. We're to be conformed to Him because the Son is merely the first. And we are to be the many that are conformed to His image as well. We are also to be living our lives understanding that it's not our lives, but it's Christ who is living in us. Galatians 2.20 Galatians 2.20 Again, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. So here's the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is how we're to be living our lives. Our lives are not our own, but they are to be a reflection of him. We are to be conformed to his image, and then we are to allow that image to live through us. Now I know that everyone, usually probably the end of a year and the beginning of another year, would like a very uplifting message for the start of the new year. And the fact is that this is an uplifting message from the standpoint that we have so much potential in our Christian lives, in our spiritual lives. And it's through the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have an impact on this nation. And so, as we look forward to the new year, we need not continue to drift downward if the believers in the nation 
truly decide that as believers, we are not going to be conformed to the world, but we are going to be transformed, and that our lives are going to exhibit our spiritual faith. But unfortunately for us so far, at least for the past probably 100 years, the opposite has been true. But we have a new year. Let's begin that new year by living as Christ would have us live and therefore by having an impact on this nation. And I think for this congregation here in the capital region, we have a very important responsibility, and that is to have impact on this area around us. Let's have an impact. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity that you give us here in the United States, but more so here in the capital region. Help us, Father, to understand the importance of who we are in Christ. We are members of the body of Christ, and we are to be conformed to his image. And therefore also, Father, be living the life that Christ has given us. Help us to remember these things as we enter the new year. Help us to redouble our dedication to our spiritual lives and how we exhibit it to those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.